0: And I kept trying to think what else is happening in that state, and and she's not turning ninety. She's not turning ninety. I won't tell you how or how far she is, but it's not ninety. Somewhere around thirty-seven, thirty-eight. We ended our time together last week. We've been talking about probably leading up to the church and, and, and we talked about the establishment of the church and uh, we ended our time together really talking about the, the, the cultural circumstance and Sunday morning in class it came up about the cultural and the socio-economic differences, the Jew and Gentile, the rich and the poor, the educational backgrounds everything you can make, men and women uh, it was just everything. And, and so, as at Pentecost, whenever the Holy Spirit comes over and the power arrives with him and the church comes into being, there was no doubt about what the church was and, and where the power lay and who, who was in charge and the authority and all of that. But you know, when, when you get one generation away from that, and I'm not talking about my years. But just a generation removed from those that were connected to it, things begin to happen. Now, now we really ended up talking a little bit about the apostasy, which is where we're going to be for a while. Um, how, how this thing fell apart, I guess is what you say. Not not that there's anything wrong with the plan, but you get human fingers involved with it, and things go wrong. Um, I thought it was interesting. Sunday, the the way things fell, we were studying Galatians, and we were talking about uh, the the cultural thing, and and then Sunday night, Scott was talking from Jude. And if you remember, we read from Jude last week, just kind of right at the very end, there there were three things that Jude said about the apostasy. Three three things that are, are, are very important. Let's go ahead and go to verse 3 and and just read verses 3 and 4. It says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now listen to verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Now, Now that's the first key point. Um the apostasy as it came, you know, we're nearing the end of the apostolic age and and the apostles are beginning to die off, they're beginning to um, either through martyrdom or natural causes or whatever they're just that first generation away from Jesus and they're not there anymore and and so you have that second generation of those that that, uh, were mentored underneath the apostles, and the apostles brought them along. And, and it you know, starts off, you've got, you got 12 of these guys, including Paul, going out, and then they get some guys, and then they get some guys, and it's spiritual multi-level marketing is what it is. And, and they got them, but folks, the further you got away from the source, the easier it became for people to interject their ideas, their opinions, and all. And it happens very slowly. And, and, and that's what Jude saying. He said, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the apostates... We're just ungodly people. I'm I'm, going to read you a passage in a minute from from a book that that I think kind of touches on this, but but I want you to think they're just ungodly.
1: They may have been,
0: quote, converted. I'm going to do this a lot tonight. But because... There's a lot of terminologies that get thrown around that when you use them in one context, they mean something else, and you bring them over here, they take on an entirely different message, and they say something different. But they were never in in the game. They they were there. They might have been, and and you've seen this. You've seen this where somebody is is, uh, pressured. To obey the gospel, and, and so they, they do so with a sense of resignation, and they go and they get dumped in the water and they come out, there's no change. They 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 were never there, they never made that connection. So so as the church was getting to that out, folks, you had a lot of folks that were coming into it that never had a connection. And and they never really sealed the deal, so to speak. But the third thing he talks about, he said they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I'm reading a book right now that's by Alfred Gardner-Smith. And I don't know if you've ever read him. Um, he's an interesting read. And if you want something that's easy to read, don't read him. Okay? <laughs> because I'll get to reading and I'll be going along. And I say, okay, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. And all of a sudden he goes off like this. And I think, I've lost, you've lost me, you know. But then he comes back like this. And it makes sense by the time you get here, you know. But but this is what he said. And, and I, I want you to listen very carefully. He said, "In matters pertaining to the church. Too often we've left the pattern and suffered the consequences. Local congregational autonomy is given way to hierarchical. Um, institutionalized church government, which has suffocated spiritual life at the local level. Now, now that's a harsh word, but it's true. We have substituted for the church a multitude of parachurch ministries, many of which have become an embarrassment to the entire Christian community and to the cause of Christ. We have abandoned the pattern of Christian conversion and found ourselves in a world of nominal Christianity where Christians are baptized but unconverted. He says biblical patterns matter because they are God's patterns. Why would God have revealed himself to us in a historical context except to set Uh, for for the way that that works, just to establish the way that works, the way his church best functions, the way we best function, as our creator, surely he must know. Now, now, let that kind of sink in in light of what we're talking about when the church strikes off on, on its own and begins to choose to To go directions because of uh, it it would just help bring in the crowd it it would just help us to to fit in better in the religious community or it'll just and and you can just keep justing all you want but when you depart from the pattern that God established and and we established that, that that happened way back at the very creation that God's plan began to unfold It's really a matter of get out of the way and let it happen and grab a hold of it and take the ride along with it. That's what God intended.
1: But as we're nearing
0: the end of the first century, the last half of it, anywhere from 25 years to to 50 years post-resurrection, you begin to see things happen in the church. And at the beginning, the church was a united body, strongly united. You know, I I love reading in Acts where where it talks about, you know, you you have thousands of people were baptized and and they began to live and share everything together. And and they were a tight-knit community. And, and, and it was just strange. That, that's what God intended. That's what Jesus bought the church for. That's how he paid. why he paid the price to establish the church. But it didn't take that long before you began to see some false teaching begin to arrive. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this. I, I can understand early on a lot of people didn't understand it, okay that they were living on their past now if you came out from outside of the church when you entered you brought let's just call it baggage you brought who you are and you're always going to be that person somewhat now there's a lot of changes happen. But everybody, and this is what you have to remember, is that everybody in the church at that time, they were newbies, They were newcomers. There would never been anything like this before. And you say, well, the, the, the Jews had grown up with the Old Testament and reading of the prophecies and all of that, and yes, they did. But folks, they didn't stop with the Jews. The Gentile world becomes, you know, comes in what kind of baggage did they bring? They came from a very much pagan society. They, they had been raised with as much care as what the Jewish brethren had been, and they were adherents to what they had been taught. See what I'm saying? Everybody had baggage that came in. And it was during this time toward the end uh, as you, know, if you read in Acts and First Timothy, Second Timothy, Second Peter, Second Thessalon, uh, um, Thessalonians, First John, you read through all of those. The apostles, as they wrote, they they were talking about the coming apostasy. And folks, you, you read history, non biblical history, and, and they'll talk about the apostasy really started and. and Uh, after the turn of that first century at the end of that first century and that's when it really grabbed hold and things began to change very rapidly but think about Paul in the Galatians study we've talked a lot and studied a lot about how um, everywhere Paul went there was this crowd anti anti Paul partially anti Christ They were just anti's. And they followed him around. And and, and they were trying to undo everything that was being done in the name of Christ for the good of the church. In, In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28, it says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. He didn't mince any words. He didn't mince any words. He he didn't say, there's going to come some people, and they're going to say some things, and you just go over and talk to them, and, and, and... Straighten them out and they say, oh, yeah, you're right, you know, and they're going to turn. How, how did he refer to them? Savage wolves. Savage wolves. You know, I, I, I think about that scene in uh, Old Yard. Anybody ever watch Old Yard? I, I, that's the saddest movie I've ever watched in my life. But I, I can remember when, I think that boy's name was Travis, wasn't he, Travis, Travis, I can't remember they got to those, those pigs, cornered him, and just tore him and old yeller apart. And they had to put up you down, you know. But I, I can just remember as a kid, I, you know, I'm old enough to have gone to see that one in the theater. I saw it before it was on VHS. You know? uh, but I went, and I remember on big screen, that was the most horrific scene I'd ever watched in my life. And and that's the image I get. But we're not talking about savagery as it relates to blood. We're talking about spiritual savagery. Where, Where they're not only trying to destroy the church, they're trying to destroy the people that are in allegiance to the church. And people that have committed themselves to the church, they're trying to steal their eternity. Often consciously. But he says, they're going to come in among you, but what else did he say? He said, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So so what he's saying is, it's going to hit you from outside, and it's going to hit you from inside. Now, that outside you expect that inside is what creeps up on you. That's that's where the creeping happens. That's when it's somebody you've had a a Christian relationship with, that you've worshipped with, that you've prayed with, that you've shared fellowship meals over, and you're good friends with. And they begin to turn. Have you seen that? And it's sad. <clears throat> but what it does, not only does it affect that generation of Christians, folks, it's the next generation and the next generation. And that's where we are right now. In Second Peter, you ever notice on Wednesday nights the clock runs faster <laughs> than it does any other night of the week? In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, he says, But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring you destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemy. 1 John 2 and verse 18, John writes, he says, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. So so if you read Peter and you read what Paul wrote, you go back and read in Timothy, they were saying, yes, there's coming a great... a great falling away, uh, a great departure from the truth. But he says, beware, because it's here right now. Now, what does that mean to us right now? We're 2,000 years after the fact. Look at what we're looking at. It grows exponentially. And it takes off. And, 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 and there's a problem. In, in Galatians, uh, Paul, in, in his writing, and you've got to understand Galatians was written about 25 to 30 years after the resurrection. That's not very long. 25 or 30 years. And, and he talks about in, in Galatians 1 and, and 6 through 9, He says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be a curse. That's, That's 25 or 30 years after the resurrection. 25 or 30 years after that day of Pentecost. That's not very long. That's not very long. Now... Tonight, I want us to look at things more from a historical perspective than a scriptural perspective. Because I think we need to understand during that 25 to 50 year period to the end of the um, first century and getting into the beginning of the next century and even touching into the next century, the progression of things that were taking place what impacted the church then folks is still impacting us today so let, let's talk a little bit about where where we are and, and, and how things came about um, probably the, the, the first big thing right after the turn of that first century we'll kind of start there and then back up a little bit The biggest thing that happened was the pattern of a plurality of elders fell fell to the wayside. And you begin to see churches established with a bishop. And then that bishop, being from a large city, kind of took over, was granted the authority, assumed the authority. He took the little country churches out here, and he began to exert authority over them. Had have this centralized, they begin to develop. And then, then all of a sudden, the little towns out here, and even smaller towns, and they begin to exert their authority over them in response to the authority being crushed and forced onto them. Do, do you see what's happening in that? And, and, and that all began within... Well, after John had received the revelation, depending on what you know, how you want to analyze the years and all that, we're right at the end of the first century. John had passed away by that time as the last of the, of the surviving apostles. And all of a sudden they said, hey, let's change the governmental organization of the church. Now, can you show me... In any of the scriptures in the New Testament where God said, I want you guys to do this. He says, I want you to get an association. Mm -hmm. And, And I want you to plan it so you can put somebody in charge. And then once every couple of years, you gather in a convention and you vote on it and see if what was true yesterday is still true today. Did God ever say that? Did Paul ever write that? Did Peter ever write that? Did you hear Jesus talk about that? I'm using you 12 guys to get everybody trained so by the end of this century, we can have some new guys take over. Okay? It didn't happen that way. So where did that authority come from? Man. 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 They chose to do that. And and you begin to have at, at the what it amounted to, they, they had chief bishops, chief elders, and then they have those that they called presbyters, which were second in the man. And, and they were subordinates to the chief bishop. Okay? There's nothing about that in Scripture. That, that's purely a man-made thing. By the end of that time, about a year old, 110, 120, right in there, you had basically five leading bishops or patriarchs, as they called them. They lived in Rome, in Alexandria, in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Constantinople. Those five locations. And they began to assume the authority overall. Now, we'll talk about some of this in more detail later. But Basically, what you're, you're beginning to see is the Roman Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. You see what's breaking down? And these entities are still here today. And, and we'll get really into that. But you know, all of this didn't happen overnight. Seeds were planted. People were drawn along. Slowly. Slowly. What I've learned about people, once you convince them to do it once, they're real easy to convince to do it again and again and again. And how long does it take you before it becomes the accepted practice in the church? I told you I'm going to do this a lot. Because, folks, when we're talking about the church, about the second century, that what was beginning to develop, that's not the church that Jesus built. That's the church that man built. And there, there's a big difference. Now, there were several doctrines that kind of came to be during that time period. And, and as we go through these, I'm only going to touch on four of them. There'll be some others later. But in, in these four, if you'll listen, and think about what they're saying and what they were teaching. You can find them as the root of some things we have going on today. The first one was asceticism. Now, that this was where you had rigid self-discipline. And you believed that, or they believed, that your personal spirit was able, able to overcome the human frailties didn't work too well any time in history that I know of, but they thought that was the way it would work. And and, and they basically held to this idea. They, They said, the more you suffered, the more spiritual you became. Now, think about what Jesus said and see a source of where that thought came from, but they carried it in a totally different direction. Did, you, did Jesus promise we will suffer in his name? Yes, he did. And then the apostles not remind them that there, there's a persecution coming on you and it's going to be tougher than anything you've ever seen and you're going to experience tough times. Didn't James write, that? you know, just paraphrasing all of that, but, but didn't he say, you know, be thankful for those tough times? Because that's where you build your your faith. That's where you grow as a Christian. But but do you see where, where the asceticists went with this? They carried it to that next level Is not only are you going to experience you need to seek it to experience it. You need to try to suffer. And the more you suffer, the more you denied yourself, the nearer you are to God. Now, this is where... This, this was the, the, the group that first began to build the monasteries. Now the monasteries, you know, they have these isolated places where people went to live to shut them off from society. But they lived in the little cells, and they ate very little, spent long hours in prayer, did a little bit of menial labor outside, and They had absolutely no private time, except for those few short hours that they were in And a lot of them didn't speak to. That's it. And, and a lot of silence was 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 the thing. Now, I would have a tough time with that one. I'll be honest with you. You know, I'd, I'd have a tough time if you told me I couldn't. I talk about kids in school. When I was in school, if you ever told me time to get quiet, trust me, I was going to be one of them that's going to try to find a way around that. You know, excuse me, teacher, teacher. You know, that was just the way I was trying to learn that from older brothers. Okay, that wasn't wasn't my idea, that was theirs. But but they built these monasteries and they isolated themselves. Do you ever remember Jesus teaching that you, you separate yourself from the world? He says, you're in the world, but not of the world. You live spiritually separate from the world, but you exist within it, because your job as a Christian is to do what? Carry the message of Christ. Carry the good news. It's different. They grew to embrace the fasting, they stressed the necessity of living in poverty. And it was from this particular doctrinal group that the concept of celibacy, celibacy in the priesthood came. Okay. None of those are principles. In fact, celibacy was one of the things that Paul, I mean, uh, not Paul, Peter, warned about. There's coming a time Coming a time. And it did. There was Montanism. And I wasn't really familiar with this one. Uh, during the second and third six centuries, to uh, Tertullian, uh, who became a Christian in about two, year 201 or 202 is what I could read. Uh, he was said to be his, his leader. They taught the possibility of miracles and revelations and prophecies and gifts of the Holy Spirit. All things sound pretty good. But then it says they were also the first to teach the theory of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And as they developed and evolved, they begin to shift over and, and kind of buddy up or team up with this asceticism group. You know, these groups start off separate, and they come together. You have Ebionism or Ebonism, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, This was primarily Jewish Christians. And and basically, they really felt strongly that they were God's chosen people. And because they were God's chosen people, that put the Gentiles here, that put them up here. And in many cases, there was actually two sects of them, two different groups of them. One group was pretty... um, They believed they were a little better, but they were still, they they would embrace them as brothers in Christ. But then you have the other group that would absolutely shun the non-Jew and have absolutely nothing to do with them. And and, and they were very, very harsh. Um, They practiced uh, fleshly uh, circumcision. They kept a lot of the law. And, and this is the group that kind of grew out of the, the ones that were following Paul around everywhere he went in the churches. Now, the, the, the is this, is everything we saw in that first century has continued to thrive in one form or another and has reached us in some way. There was the Gnostics. Um, the Gnostics were kind of a cross between Christianity and paganism, if you can imagine. But they they never recognized the deity of Christ. They tried to answer things using God as the answer of the origin of the world, but they still thought that all matter, this this is their big thing, they felt that all matter was evil. Well, that meant, when you sat on this pew, this pew is evil. So you never escape evil. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you go into J.C. Penney and it's full of evil hanging on the racks. You know, that's just the way they did that. That was their fault. And since all matter is evil, God was opposed to it. And see where that's leading. Give up personal belongings. Give it all up. Separate yourself from the evil that that's there. And this this was a very popular sect uh, group belief uh, up up until the fifth or sixth century, but then it began to die. Now, around the year three eighteen. In Alexandria, there was this huge controversy that came up about the person of Christ. Was Christ the Son of God, or was Christ one created by God as a part of humanity and was a great prophet? And, and, and it, it was serious business. You, you had Arius uh, that was teaching that Christ was not eternal, that he was uh, a, a created being, Um, Athanasia taught that Christ was eternal and divine, and and the two parties couldn't get along. And this was all this kind of shifted. Constantine, who was the the emperor of Rome at the time, was not a Christian himself, but he kind of leaned kindly toward the Christian. And uh, he got involved. And, and, And the reason he got involved, he didn't like the idea of his kingdom being wrought with division. So he wanted to bring peace to his his realm, okay? Now in the process, he consented to be baptized. Um, He called a council of bishops in the year 325 in the city of Nicaea. And at this council that he called, there were 318 bishops and a number of church leaders that attended. And Constantine himself presided. Now, that tells you where that's going. Constantine provo- presided, and he had all the great pomp and circumstance and all of that. And during the meeting, a decision was made, and he didn't give the vote, but a decision was made that Christ was the Son of God and eternal. Now, isn't it sad that people were not going to allow that issue to be settled until they had 5-4 vote. And, and that's what it came down to. And, and, and it really makes me sad when I look around now. That's the way the world looks at religion. We gather every year or two and we vote on what the truth is. I feel sorry for women. Because you, you have votes one year, you're to be submissive to So in in submission, and the next year you don't have to be, and and the next you know, it goes back and forth. It depends on who gets the vote that year, and and it makes it a a a sad thing. From that arose the first quote official creed of the church, okay, the Nicene Creed, creed, um, who which is still followed very closely in, in many many religious orders today.
1: And this is where
0: it has to be pointed out and we need to be reminded that we don't have to vote on a creed. And we don't have to vote on what we believe because our creed is what? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And that's all we I've read that creed, I've read the Apostles' Creed, and I've read all the other creeds in there. And they all come down with this word. They'll say the Holy Catholic Church. Some quarters will say the uh, Universal Church. But what it's saying is they're all pointing <laughs> toward They're pointing toward one with that creed. Now, we'll pick up next week.